Our gospel reading uh, this morning comes from Matthew 21. We'll read the gospel together and then we'll pray. See what the Lord has for us. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Jesus said, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. So good to be with all of you this morning. Welcome to church. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name's Ashley. If we haven't met, I'm the priest and pastor here. Uh, we truly are thrilled to have you with us for worship this morning. Um, and I, I suspect um, all of us come this morning with, um, you know, heavy hearts. And uh, war is heavy. Violence is heavy. It's heavy um, no matter whom it falls upon or where it happens. And, um, you know, it's the hard, it's the downside of belonging to one another. Paul says, um, if one of us hurts, we all hurt together. And that's just true of humanity. We're bound to one another, this flesh and blood, all of us made in the image of God. And so um, everything sort of we say this morning, I just want to be in the service of those things, both which are real, which is that the world is broken and not as it should be, and in the service of a hope which is greater than all of our brokenness, and in our hope for a healing that will come, and in reading these promises um, for a very particular people born out of a very particular place. It's with the people of God, with the people of Israel, the people of Palestine, the people of God. Um, And we hold them in our mind and in our hearts this morning. And so let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help to like hold up high the hope of God that not only we need this morning, but like everybody needs, you know. Um, To help us, Holy Spirit, we cry out to you, Lord, as we have in our songs this morning. Have mercy on us, Lord, all of us for the violence in our own hearts and for violence everywhere. God, our hearts cry out to you. Have mercy, God, and help us. Hosanna, Lord. Save us, God. 
over those who are hurting, those who are grieving, those who are terrified. Jesus, we extend our love and all the force and power of our prayers over them this morning. Have mercy, God. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be now here with us and through these words of Jesus, who is our hope and the hope of heaven and the hope of all the world, will you lift us up, God? Raise our eyes to you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in us and our own hearts whatever it is, Lord, that needs to be done. Lord, we turn our attention to your word this morning, why it matters, what it is. And we ask you, Jesus, to be our teacher. Help us to see things, behold wondrous things, Lord, in your word. And it's in your name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm having trouble here with my thing. We, um, those of you who get our, our newsletter have heard already, we're going to be spending uh, the next few weeks doing um, a kind of series. Look at us. We're Anglicans who do teaching series, apparently, as of today. Um, that's not a joke to some of you because some of you come from spaces in which that's a very common or typical thing to do. You're like, whatever, it's a sermon series. Um, I don't think I've preached a sermon series in about a decade, though. And um, that's because for Anglicans, um, all of our teaching comes to us by way of the lectionary. So I don't choose what we're preaching from as a general rule. Um, the Bible comes to me in the same way it comes to you. Um, people settled that score for us a long time ago. And so we just, you know, I, on Monday I sit with it and then um, we all sit with it together. And I love that. And so we're going to be preaching from the lectionary, but we're going to do it with an eye towards a particular question or set of questions, and for those of you who've gotten the newsletter, um, you know already, we're going to be thinking about what it means for us to be a three streams church, which is language that we have used here in our member meeting spaces. If you're new to Christ the King, it's not something that you should know or would have heard or necessarily even understand. But really what we've said in short is that one of our commitments, one of our core commitments here at Christ the King is that we would be a people who are shaped by Scripture, uh, led by the Spirit, and strengthened by the sacraments. And that language may mean nothing to you at all. Um, but in my life with the Lord, it has become increasingly important to think about that threefold commitment. What does it mean to be shaped by what we believe about the Bible? What does it mean actually to be led by the Holy Spirit? Why do we do this every Sunday? How and in what way are we strengthened by the sacraments? Why do they matter? And who we are here at Christ the King, both on Sundays, so it shapes the way we worship together, um, but I also hope it means a whole lot more than that, that it's also increasingly shaping our life together outside of Sundays, that those th that threefold commitment to Scripture, the Spirit, and the sacraments will shape my life with God over time, actually. So it's why we, you know, read so much of the Bible here. It's why we sing praise choruses and give you space actually to be with God and, like, invite the Holy Spirit into whatever it is you got going on <laughs> at the beginning of worship, and it's why we come to the table every week. Because those things are going to, they're shaping us, they're forming us. So for the next several weeks in October, we're going to have an eye towards a particular question, like what does it mean to be shaped by the scripture, actually? What does that actually mean? What is the Bible, is our question for today. And I only have 20 minutes in a sermon, and we're going to be answering that question, or at least thinking about it together, through the texts that are assigned to us through the lectionary. And I actually think... Um, by a kind of stroke of genius, those texts do an incredible job of setting us up to really engage that question. What is the Bible? I think, um, I don't know that I could have hand-selected a better set 
of um, Scripture to hold up for us what it is that the Bible's intended to do, um, what it is. And so uh, let me just sort of get necessary disclaimers um, out of the way here at the outset. Uh, very conscientious, faithful, Jesus-loving, Bible-loving people will answer this question differently. You know, what is the Bible? And if you were to be asked that question, what is the Bible, and you were to like rattle something off in 10 seconds or less, um, as my very Baptist mother did uh, yesterday, <laughs> she was just like, mm, Sunday school answer, I know. And uh, same, me too. The Bible is the infallible, inherent word of God. Yeah? And so I, you know, you'll have, and all, in this room with this many people, there are going to be all kinds of feelings about a statement like that. And what I love about Christ the King is that we can just acknowledge it all together. Um, part of being a three streams church means you're always inviting a little bit of tension into whatever space you're in, right? Um, because we've got some charismatics and we've got some Episcopalians and we've got some Baptist folks all trying to come together and love Jesus with one another. And I actually think that that's a very holy and worthy endeavor. Don't mean it's easy. The best things never are. And so I'm just going to say there may be, I don't, you know, there may be things that you've never heard before or maybe even that you slightly disagree with. And I would like to submit to you that that doesn't mean that we can't belong to one another. That actually our great hope is the people of God who've been wrestling with this stuff for a long time, y'all. And part of what we've lost is not the wrestling. It's not our differences. What we've lost is the ability to hold on to each other through our differences. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. We're never all going to start to think the same. You want to know why? Because God loves your brain. And God loves your brain. And my brain. And each of us are the image of God, but each of us reflect that image differently, and that's exactly the way he would have it to be. And if he wanted, ro he wanted robots, he would have made us robots. We make robots. God makes humans. They're different things. So what is the Bible? How do we even begin to wrestle with and grapple with a question like that? The Old Testament reading um, that we have uh, today um, is from Exodus. We read Exodus, yeah? We didn't. We read Isaiah first. Bummer. <laughs> um, Isaiah also matters. That's a really great one. Here's the story. <laughs> ah, here's the story we didn't read. <laughs> the lectionary, <laughs> Jamie thinks that's particularly funny because he understands the way the lectionary works, and it is funny. Um, so there are, two <laughs> there are two Old Testament readings and for assigned for today, one of them from Exodus, one of them from Isaiah. They are, then they all work together as a, in a piece. The Exodus story that we didn't read is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, and so I suspect at one point or another, if you've spent any amount of time in the church, you've heard those before or read them or have some foggy memory of what they might be. And if you're brand new to all this and you've never heard them before, that's fine. You hang around long enough, you'll get to it. But it's the story in Exodus of um, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and then um, outlining them for the people of Israel. Uh, it's actually not the story of God giving the Ten Commandments. So Moses hears them in this story that was assigned by the lectionary, but they're not given to the people of God. That's going to happen later. And I just want to do like a little review of what that moment is. It's a really big deal, an important moment, because it actually is the first time that God gives us written communication, is that moment on Sinai. Up until then, um, we've had revelations. God's been speaking to us through people like Abraham and through the stories that people tell 
um, through their encounters with him. But then we get to Sinai and everything changes. Actually, what happens is that um, we get to Sinai. How we get there, we'll talk about in a second. But we get there. Moses goes up on the mountaintop with God and he's there. Does anybody remember how long? If you had, it's probably going to be a standard Bible number. So if I was you, I'd start there. It's like going to be 7, 12, or 40, you know? Those are your options. 40 days. What if it wasn't? What if it was like 22 weeks? You know, it never is. It's never 22 weeks. 40 days and 40 nights. Why? Why? Here's another thing about the Bible, which, by the way, if we don't know one another, I've been endlessly fascinated with since before I could read. Before I learned how to read, I used to hold my mom's giant KJV. Um, I grew up on the King James, and I would hold it and behold its wonders even though I couldn't read them. I felt drawn to it, bound to it my entire life, and I will never tire of spending time in its pages. 40 days and 40 nights isn't just a quantity or an amount of time. It's the Bible's, it's a kind of cue or hint, secret for those who've learned to like pay attention to the way it talks. It's a way of alerting you to something that means something, not just the amount of days, but it means something to spend 40 days and 40 nights. What else happened in 40 days and 40 nights? What do we remember? Yes, the wilderness. Who first? Before Jesus? Why did Jesus go into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights? Because the people of Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years before Jesus ever did. And why did the people of Israel go into the wilderness for 40 years? Ah, oh, because Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights up on Sinai. Why did Moses spend 40 days and 40 nights? Because the flood came for 40 days and 40 nights. Why? Because what 40 days and 40 nights means is it's a kind of cue to pay attention Something old is giving way to something new. That's what it means. Things that were are giving rise to new things. Old creation is bearing new creation, both in the flood, both in Moses on Sinai, in Israel in the wilderness, in Jesus in the wilderness, in Lent. How long is Lent? 40 days. Because Easter's coming, and what's old is giving way to what's new. So it signals us to something, to pay attention. Moses goes up on this mountaintop with God, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he receives all kinds of wonders from the Lord. Yes, the Ten Commandments, but also, y'all, there's a huge chunk in Exodus where God gives Moses the priesthood, the tabernacle, instructions for the Sabbath, and then the commandments. And if you'll remember in the story, Moses receives these commandments, which are written by whom? The very finger of God. God's own finger writes on the stone tablets. Moses takes the stone tablets and brings them down the mountaintop to all of us. And I swear to the good Lord, some of us act like we think that's still how the Bible gets made. It was made that way. One time. One time, God wrote it with his own finger on stone tablets, and Moses brought it down the mountaintop and gave it to us. But if you remember, did we ever even get to see it? What happens to the stone tablets? Mm, they get smashed, which is a story for next week. They get smashed. They never make it down uh, the mountaintop. But there we had them, written with God's own finger, 
Here's the thing, though. If Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and God gives him all these instructions and all these commandments, and he writes them with his finger, gives us our written word, which, by the way, and again, oh, I'll never make it in 20 minutes. The, the early church, Christians, and the Jewish people have been, we are known by our binding, our tethering to the word of God. We are people of scripture. We have been. And this is like a historical fascination and anomaly, actually. The early church, is, which was a continuation of our Jewish heritage, being people who are so text-bound, is a, is a fascinating thing among religious people. It is then these stories, y'all, these stories of Abraham, these stories of creation, these stories of Moses before them, and then the stories of Jesus, and then the letters from the apostles. Those stories, those instructions from God have held us and bound us together for a people for a very long time, way before we could ever actually write them down, let alone print them with a printing press. You have been word-bound as a people since before you were a people, it's this word, capital W, that has held us together, and that has a lot more to do with than just these pages in black and white. There's something, in other words, at work, something more real even than the pages themselves, she says, as a Baptist girl with fear and trembling. Forty days and forty nights, if it's a signal that something new is coming out of something old what is the something new what is it what was God doing what does he want us to see in the flood story okay we've got old creation broken creation giving way to a new creation okay now we're on Sinai we've got old what slavery we just came out of 400 years in Egypt 400 years of being a nameless, godless, hopeless, wandering band of slaves. The promises of Abraham, but a foggy memory in our minds. The only thing we knew of God was to cry out for deliverance, and thank God that's the one thing we knew how to do, which is still true. Have you realized that no matter how much we forget about who God is or how much about Jesus we decide we don't believe in, when we're in real trouble, what's our instinct? Yeah, you don't forget how to cry out. You can't. So we did. In our slavery. And Moses came and God delivered us and we went through the waters and we get all the way to Sinai and God is going to do a new thing. And what is the new thing? Well, the new thing is always an old thing. The new thing is that out of this band of slaves, I'm going to make myself a free people. In the same story that we told in Genesis 1, out of this chaotic soil, I'm going to raise up Adam. I'm going to raise to life a nefesh, a living thing. I'm going to breathe my breath into this lifeless lump of clay, and out of this moving less, lifeless thing, I'm going to raise a man. She says without any hint of patriarchy at all. A man. A beautiful God-reflecting, image-bearing, full of the Holy Spirit, human being. And he is so committed to that that he does it again and again and again and again. I'm going to raise for myself a covenant-keeping, image-bearing people, people who can make promises and keep them, 
people who can believe that they are meant to be the hope of the world. I'm going to bless a person who will then take that blessing and not use it for themselves or spend it on themselves, but turn it outward to bless the world. That's Genesis 12. God announces himself to Abraham and says to you, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless the world. That's the promise. That's the covenant. Be my image bearers to the world. And so on Sinai, that's what God was trying to do, make us covenant-keeping, image-bearing people through whom he could love the world. That's his vision, always has been. And he didn't just give us the Ten Commandments to that end. He also gave us the priesthood and the tabernacle and the Sabbath, all of these gracious gifts, all with the same purpose. To give us an opportunity and a way to behave. No, nobody has ever raised their hands in glory and praise because of a God who wants you to behave. Because he wants us to know stuff. Because he wants us to be smarter and more right than everybody else. Yes. So that you can go to heaven. Just you, though. And everybody you like. No. Why? Why tabernacle? Why Sabbath? Why commandments? Why? So that we could commune with the living God so that our slavery could be turned into freedom, so that you could go from being an identityless, a nameless, hopeless clump of clay, lump of clay, to being a human with hope, with a future, with the name of a God who knows you and loves you, who desires to be known by you, to make himself known, to hold you and keep you, and we all know that's not easy. Communion with God is not easy. It's not easy in your Bible. It's not easy when you pray. It's not easy when you come to church. It's not easy. There are 1,000 miles, it feels like, all the time between us and wherever God is. And that's the grief of your entire Bible, is that fact. Because he didn't build it that way. And so if we're going to commune with God, we are going to have to have some gracious help. And so these commandments, this written word, like everything else, comes to us exactly that way, as a gracious help. It's like a trellis. What needs a trellis? Oh, I don't know, a vine. So it's why the prophet Isaiah, he's not just pulling this out of thin air. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah, which is the text we did read, is a story, a beautiful, ancient, powerful story about how God feels about the world, how God feels in particular about his people. Because he did, by the way, redeem and ransom and rescue a particular people from whom you have come and belong. But this particular people, what does he say? Somebody read me the first verse from Isaiah. What does he say? 
We're going to do church together. I'll wait. Yep. Let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. You cannot turn that God into a passive, remote, and unfeeling smiter. That God is a God of our own creation. That God is the sum total of our idols. It's not the God of Israel. Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. Every vineyard's got to have a trellis. If you're going to grow grapes, you've got to attach them to something. Or what happens? They yield wild grapes. They sour on you. They're too close to the ground. You've got to get them up. And so they have to have something to which they can be tethered and so that they can grow and produce the fruit that they are meant to produce. So God gives us these gracious gifts, your Bible being one of them, to keep you tethered and aimed in the direction that you are meant to be aimed. Which is not just, y'all, towards right behavior or even, God, help me, right thinking. Or even, God, help me, right believing. He knows how fallible your brain is, no matter how infallible this word is, which, by the way, I believe it to be. There is nothing in your Bible that's wrong. There is nothing in your Bible that's broken. I'll explain more later. But take my word on it. I'm not letting anybody I've ever met or ever heard Fix it. You know what I'm saying? But I am fallible. And you are fallible. And your favorite, most smartest teacher you've ever heard. Fallible. So what do we do? I guess it must mean that getting it right can't be the goal. At least not in the way we think about right. So what is right? God gave us all these gracious gifts to help us get it right. I don't think so. It can't be it. God gave us all these gracious gifts so that we could become covenant-keeping, image-bearing people, so that we could be aimed in the direction of his promises and become the people we were created to be, even when we're wrong, even when we mess up. That has to be the case, because did Israel get it right? Even with all these gracious gifts, did they get it right? No. Somebody read me the last stanza in Isaiah. What does he say? We didn't get it right. You can read your Bible your whole life and not get it right. You can go to church every Sunday and read your Bible and not get it right. Why can't we get it right? 
That's the cry of the Old Testament. Why can't we get it right? You delivered us, you ransomed us, you went through all this trouble, you set us free, and why can't we get it right? What we need, and this is how your Old Testament ends, what we need is help. Maybe rescuing again. Oh, the Psalms. Psalm 80, the psalm we read together. Somebody have it? I have it. Why can't we get it right? Turn now, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven. Behold and tend this vine. Preserve what your right hand has planted. This is what I love about Israel. I may have produced sour grapes. I may have produced wild grapes. But you planted me. So the grapes are yours. And I guess if you would like for me to produce something other than the wild and sour grapes, then you need to tend to your vine. Jews taught me to pray. Because so far from being offended, God's not you. He's not as thin-skinned. God's not you. He loves harder and fiercer and bigger and better than me and you. And so strangely, so far from being offended, when we pray this way, you look from heaven, you do something about this vine, what your Lord receives it as is affirmation and confirmation that you know you can't look anywhere else and that you don't have it in yourself to do what you want to do and who you want to be. You can't. It's an affirmation of his reality of his existence, of his sovereignty and who he is, and he likes it that way. So just name what you're not and what you can't do. You don't have to do it with anger and vengeance in your heart or in your words. You can't. He'll take care of that if you do. You remember Jacob. We've talked about it so many times because until you people believe me that you were born to wrestle with God, I'm going to keep saying it. The reason that God met Jacob at the river and invited him to wrestle is because that's what he wants us to do. Not take cheap shots. That's different. You take cheap shots, you're not in it yet. You want to be in it with us, come in, take hold of the living God and wrestle and he will delight in it. You may walk with a limp, but he will delight in it. Israel, those who wrestle with God. We can't get it right that's how the Old Testament ends. What are we going to do? Oh, if we only had a second Moses. If we only had somebody who could come and rescue us out of our slavery and set us up and be a word of God over us and in us and through us. What if God, rather than writing those words on a stone tablet, what if he would write them on my heart so that I could be the thing, not just read the thing, but be the thing? What if he would animate my life in such a way so that I could become what he's called me to become? If only we had Jesus. So that when you get to the Gospels and you read Matthew and Jesus tells these parables about a vineyard, it's probably not random. Because your Bible is, in the words of Tim Mackey, and nobody's ever said it better, and trust me, I've looked, Tim Mackey says your Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. 
over and over and over and over and over again. Your Bible is one brilliant, magnificent, holy, God-breathed, inspired, perfect story that leads to Jesus. But he is the truest and best thing. And the goal is to become more and more like him. Because the only way I ever get to where I'm meant to go is to keep him in front of me. I, when I get to my Bible, I'll have to understand it all. You can't, you won't. So I sit and I read it and I trust. Lord, take the things I do understand and the things I don't and bind me to yourself and lead me where you want me to go. Every time I pray, help me God to pray. My brain is full of monkeys in the form of two small children and all the people that irritate me. <laughs> Lead me, Jesus, by your grace. Tether me to this trellis so that I can bear the fruit I'm meant to grow. In the podcast, which we'll post on Wednesday, we'll talk about the particulars, we'll talk about the technical stuff, but that is the thing, your Bible is a gift given by a good and gracious God who more than anything wants you to stand upright and bear the fruit you are meant to bear. To his glory, amen. Holy Spirit, take all the things, Lord, that are right as you determine what is right and good as you determine what is good, and I pray, God, they would find in us ready, willing, and fertile soil and that we would be a people, Lord Jesus, who keep your covenant and bear your image all to the glory of your name. We love you, Jesus. And in your name we pray, amen.